Welcome to today's George Consortium COVID Law Briefing on Abortion Exceptionalism During COVID-19. This is brought to you by Northeastern's Public Health Law Watch and Temple University's Center for Public Health Law Research. I'm Maya Mannion, Visiting Professor at Howard University School of Law, and I'm thrilled to be here today with Rachel Rabouche, Associate Dean for Research and Professor of Law at Temple University School of Law, and Seema Mohapatra, Associate Professor of Law and Dean's Fellow at Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law. So today, we're going to focus on state efforts to ban the provision of abortion care during coronavirus lockdown. Now, Rachel and Seema, you both have deep expertise in reproductive rights and justice, so I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts. And I'm going to start us off by giving a brief overview of how state responses to COVID-19 have intersected with abortion care. And then we'll turn to both of you to discuss in more depth the public health implications of these abortion So to start us off, a number of states have explicitly sought to suspend access to abortion care, relying on state orders to halt all non-essential health care services. Now, these state orders to delay non-essential health care vary in their detail, but generally speaking, health care providers have some discretion to decide what care is essential, except in the context of abortion in these states. Attorney generals and governors in states such as Texas, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Ohio, Alabama, Louisiana, Tennessee, and Iowa have sought to ban entirely access to abortion care, or nearly entirely, while stay-at-home orders are in effect due to the coronavirus pandemic. These states that have threatened to enforce COVID-based abortion bans have a long history of attacking abortion. So it's not a great leap in logic to say that these states are exploiting the coronavirus pandemic to further a political agenda and attack access to abortion care. So these state-level abortion bans all vary in their details and in how they're enforced. But in general, state executive officials have articulated two ostensible purposes for abortion bans during COVID. The first is to preserve personal protective equipment, or PPE, for healthcare workers. And the second is to protect the public health by reducing the spread of coronavirus through personal contact. However, these abortion bans, in fact, undermine those stated goals and do more harm than good, which is something we will explain further in our discussion. Discussion. But let's start with one striking example, which is the COVID-based abortion ban in Texas, which seems to be changing by the minute. Rachel, could you tell us more about what's going on with the Texas litigation? Or the mess in Texas, um, as I've come to think about it, it has been confusing litigation to watch unfold and has caused thousands of Texans seeking abortion care undue delay and deep uncertainty. So a month ago, Governor Abbott signed an executive order ordering all non-essential surgeries and procedures suspended until uh, midnight April 21st. Um, The Attorney General Ken Paxton chimed in to emphasize that all non-urgent abortions, uh, all abortions except those to save a patient life or health, fell under the category of non-essential. Advocates for providers promptly sued and won a temporary restraining order, a TRO, from a federal district court in Austin. Why? The order applied to all abortions, even early abortions like medication abortions for two weeks before 10 weeks that rely on two pills. So that's a pre-viability abortion ban, and it is unconstitutional. The first time since Roe v. Wade that the state of Texas has banned pre-viable abortion. Um, The win was short-lived. The appellate court, the Fifth Circuit, lifted the TRO and reinstated the 
executive order with that narrow exception, um, namely those who would exceed the 22 legal limit in the state that uh, Texas uh, does not permit abortion after 22 weeks of pregnancy could seek abortion services under the order. The reason of the Fifth Circuit of the Fifth Circuit is that what I think we should focus on today, um, even though the same sequence played out a second time, the case went back to the district court, which ordered a TRO. The Fifth Circuit stayed the TRO and then reinstated the order. Uh, the Fifth Circuit uh, opinion, that both opinions by the Fifth Circuit are really striking. Uh, the case relies on a, a decision that public health scholars know very well, Jacobson versus Massachusetts. The Fifth Circuit interpreted this 1905 case uh, upholding a state law requiring smallpox vaccinations as providing very broad permission for the state to suspend constitutional rights in a health emergency. But Jacobson also requires that state policy be reasonable. It cannot be pretext for arbitrary or oppressive state action. The Texas order, as the suspension orders in other states, are arguably unreasonable, arbitrary, and oppressive. They undermine their own purposes and they inflict harm without any corresponding health benefit. Thank you, Rachel, for that summary. Seema, should we be surprised that Texas and so many other states are treating abortion differently than other procedures? Sadly, no. This is quite familiar. Abortion care is often treated differently than any other kind of healthcare service. And as Rachel discussed, we're seeing this happen again with this pandemic. Abortion care is the only healthcare service that's specifically carved out by Medicaid via the Hyde Amendment and the appropriations bills that incorporate the Hyde Amendment each year and was even incorporated by reference in the coronavirus relief legislation, the CARES Act. And if anything, COVID-19 abortion care actually should be treated differently than other healthcare procedures states have put on hold due to concerns about coronavirus infection and adequate PPE because there is a legal right for one to make reproductive decisions, and that includes getting a timely and safe pre-viability abortion. A colonoscopy or other restricted procedure, they don't have the same kind of legal protection. So that would actually point to allowing access in these situations rather than restricting access. But instead, we're seeing states stigmatize abortion care for political reasons instead of seeing it as a part of a whole host of necessary reproductive care services. Yes, and I think it's also important that we note that major medical organizations uh, like ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and others have issued a statement that abortion care is essential and time-sensitive healthcare that should not be delayed even during this pandemic. In clinical guidelines, the World Health Organization has also stated that sexual and reproductive health care should be accessible despite the COVID-19 pandemic. And they specifically include safe abortion care under such health care. In addition, these abortion bans counteract the ostensible purposes that I mentioned earlier. The two ostensible purposes of these abortion bans of preserving PPE and decreasing exposure. And this is mainly because state-level abortion bans will either increase travel and exposure for those who will now travel out of state for abortion care, which has been happening, or they will result in more healthcare exposures for pregnant people who are forced to carry a pregnancy to term. Because of course, women who are denied access to abortion care for an unintended pregnancy may then be forced to carry their pregnancy to term. They will need to seek prenatal care and care for childbirth, which ultimately uses much more healthcare resources than abortion care. In the COVID litigation that's been happening, medical experts have stated that abortion care does not require the use of significant amounts of PPE, either for aspiration abortion. 
abortion, or particularly for medication abortion. Um, and on that point, Rachel, can you tell us a little bit more about medication abortion specifically, its impact on PPE and interaction required with healthcare providers under current laws? So this issue was at the heart of the debate between the state and advocates between Fifth, the Fifth Circuit and the District Court in the Texas litigation. Um, medication abortion is a two-pill regimen spaced 24 or 48 hours apart before 10 weeks of pregnancy. Almost 40% of the nation's abortion care is delivered via medication abortion, percentage that has been going up in uh, recent years. It is incredibly safe and rarely results in complications. Um, it takes very little medication abortion, if anything, in the way of personal protective equipment. No mask, no gown, just pills. Um, what may use minimal PPE are the office visits required by state law of all abortion patients. So think of a mandatory ultrasound or in-person counseling. This is what the Fifth Circuit pointed to in supporting the state's argument that medication abortion uses PPE. And as an aside, another argument offered by the Fifth Circuit last week uh, was that abortion providers use PPE because they now wear masks and gloves as COVID protection. Um, we might have time to return to that uh, in a moment, but it's circular to say the least. Um, in any case, medication abortion could be delivered with little to no patient provider contact. Uh, providers could supervise administration by phone or over the internet using telemedicine approaches. This is what Planned Parenthood plans to do in its health centers across the U.S. and what countries like the U.K. and Canada have done as COVID-19 responses. The problem is that many states require in-person consultation and ultrasounds before an abortion or require a physician to be physically present for some or all of the medication abortion process. The latter category of laws often explicitly ban telehealth or abortion. Texas is one of the 18 states that does not allow teleabortion. That's at the same time, notably, that the state has loosened telemedicine restrictions for other procedures as a COVID-19 response. Um, there are impediments at the federal level. An outdated protocol of the FDA requires that patients pick up prescriptions from health centers rather than having medication abortion delivered to their homes or to pharmacies. I think in short, there are lots of policies states and um, federal, the federal government could suspend if the goal was to stop the spread of COVID-19 and conserve health care resources. So in a nutshell, ironically, Texas is relying on its unnecessary restrictions on access to abortion to justify banning abortion. It's exacerbating its own emergency in some sense. Thank you, Rachel. So Seema, we, we are facing a public health crisis with COVID-19, of course. Should abortion care also be considered a public health issue? Definitely. Abortion care is absolutely a public health issue. When you track it, states with the most restrictive Excess abortions are also those with the highest rates of maternal and infant mortality. And we can think of abortion access as a rough proxy for other measures in that state, such as access to health care, including prenatal and postnatal care, and other social determinants of health. States which have more restrictions on abortion also tend to have poorer funded educational systems, higher poverty rates, and laxer environmental regulation. So from a public health point of view, it's important to think about disparities in abortion access as structural social inequalities. Yes, and we do have um, extensive empirical evidence of disparities in access to abortion care. 
Unfortunately, the lack of access to abortion care in states like Texas does not affect all people the same way. These bans are not going to impact all people the same way. Almost half of pregnancies in this country are unintended, and that rate goes up to 75% of pregnancies among people under 20 years of age. Low-income people have the highest rates of abortion, and that is in part because a person living in poverty is more than five times as likely as someone not living in poverty to have an unintended pregnancy. And of course, it's always important to remember that people of color are disproportionately poor in the U.S. Approximately 22.5% of African Americans and 18.8% of Latinx individuals are living below the poverty level. And that's compared with 9.5% of whites and 10.8% of Asian Americans. So Seema, can you talk a little bit more about how this data we have on health disparities is playing out in this pandemic, specifically in the abortion context? Sure. So two of the most common reasons to seek abortion care are economic insecurity and inability to financially care for a child. So both of these things are likely to be much worse due to the economic effects of COVID-19. And these abortion delays really are problematic for poor people because abortion gets more expensive as one gets later in gestational age. There are stories coming out of Texas already, women driving nine hours from Texas to New Mexico to get abortion care, and not everyone can do this. Low-income women may not have access to a car or transportation. They may not be able to take time off. They may not be able to arrange childcare. And during this pandemic, the lowest wage workers are the ones that are deemed essential, and they're most often people of color. A recent study found that one in three jobs held by women has been designated as essential during this pandemic, and non-white women are much more likely to be doing essential jobs than anyone else. And another thing to think about is that 60% of people who seek abortions already have children. And so in this time when childcare is unavailable or childcare centers are closed, finding childcare and these logistical issues are also a problem. And these can all cause a delay in seeking an abortion, especially if you have to drive or go far away to get it. Now, people who have been denied abortion are much more likely to not have enough money to pay for basic family necessities like food, housing, transportation. And studies also also show that people who can't terminate unwanted pregnancies are more likely to stay in contact with violent partners, which puts them and their children at greater risk than that if they had received an abortion. And if you think about it right now with COVID-19, crossing state lines in this pandemic is particularly dicey. It exposes more people possibly to COVID-19, much more than, say, medication abortion. So it, it seems like there really is an unfortunate domino effect. Is that an accurate description, Seema? Yes, definitely. Um, it's it's kind of a cycle. Abortion is more expensive the longer you wait, and these bans are causing a delay. So people who could have taken two pills are now required to overcome a bunch of hurdles to get abortion care at a later time. And because of the financial stress that COVID-19 is already causing, this just adds to it. And so also, if a person can't get an abortion, they face the possibility of giving birth, which not only would require a lot more PPE, like you mentioned, but is way more dangerous than 
abortion care. Unfortunately, the U.S. leads the developed world in maternal mortality rate, and Texas has the highest maternal mortality rates of any state. And birthing is particularly dangerous for Black women who face three to four times the risk of pregnancy-related death than white women. And also, unintended childbearing is known to be associated with a whole host of other adverse effects. So this can further exacerbate health and social disparities. So again, these bans don't affect all people the same way. And just as we're seeing COVID-19 disproportionately harming people of color, people of color, especially Black women, also face the most harm from these abortion coverage bans. Thank you, Seema. So we've discussed the situation in Texas and the Fifth Circuit decisions on that in some detail. So I just also wanted to note that the Supreme Court already has an abortion case from the Fifth Circuit on its docket this term. And that is June Medical Services versus Russo, which is currently pending before the Supreme Court with a decision expected this June. Uh, In June Medical Services, the Fifth Circuit upheld a Louisiana law requiring abortion providers to have admitting privileges at local hospitals. Now, just four years ago, in Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstead, the Supreme Court struck down an identical Texas law, those same admitting privileges requirement, because the court recognized that admitting privileges requirements serve no health benefit, yet impose substantial obstacles to accessing abortion care. But of course, now Justice Kennedy, who provided the fifth vote to strike down abortion restrictions in a whole woman's health has been replaced by Justice Kavanaugh. So the court seems poised to permit more restrictions on abortion. So we only have a little bit of time left. Rachel, do you expect any of the COVID-related abortion litigation to be considered by the Supreme Court? It depends. Uh, There could be a a split among the circuit courts if laws enjoined at the district court level are appealed. And as the Fifth Circuit had decided, appellate courts reinstate state the bans. We don't know what will happen in Alaska yet, which has suspended some abortion care and a court has yet to rule on that uh, order. If a case comes before the Supreme Court, potentially one of the central issues will be how far states can go to suspend a constitutional right, pre-viability abortion, as a public health measure. Uh, The Fifth Circuit suggested that the state can go very far, that that court didn't question if the Texas policy was unreasonable or arbitrary or oppressive as I mentioned. And that's troubling for all the reasons we discussed. An order with no health benefit and only health burdens, burdens on those who are already struggling under COVID-19, who are already uh, uh, subject to deep inequalities of our healthcare system. Well, I think our time is up. Thank you so much, Seema, and thank you, Rachel, and thanks to everyone for joining us.